Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of the day it is or night it is, entrepreneurship and leadership listeners on the MBN. I'm here with my business partner, Kimon. Pontakidis and a very special guest, David Regan. David, rather than me trying to introduce you, why don't you introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced, imagining you've bumped into someone at a business networking event or indeed a party? Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me. Um, name is uh, David Rand. Uh, I am the uh, co-founder and CEO of Stream Companies and uh, Full Throttle. So Stream is a integrated advertising agency um, serving um, the, the, the mid-market companies. And um, Full Throttle is the leading first-party uh, identification and ad tech solution uh, when it comes to um, being able to help brands uh, and agencies build uh, first-party data for their clients and then activate that across um, numerous uh, DSPs and ad platforms uh, in the world. Uh, and maybe for people who aren't specialists in that industry, what's a DSP? Uh, a, a demand service provider. So, you know, um, some of the, the big DSPs that people might be familiar with, Trade Desk, um, you know, is, is a huge one um, in the advertising industry. Um, certainly, um, people know Google uh, and, and, and Facebook. So um, they, there's a lot of, uh, you know, added inventory uh, in those, those platforms. Fantastic. And it, it, can you give a sense of the scale of your business? We know you've been in business for more than 20 years, but in terms of the number of people, or I don't know if you disclose your revenue, just so, some sense of how, how large your company is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at, at Stream, we've got about 500 uh, employees. Uh, and Full Throttle, we have a, about 100. And uh, the collective entities all uh, do about $225 million uh, this year in revenue. Okay, and for anyone listening who doesn't realize, that means that David would probably have plenty of other things to do other than talk to us. So we're going to be very appreciative, <laughs> very appreciative of your of your time. And um, one one follow up quick question before I hand over to Keeman: that when you were growing up and you were a kid, like even before college, did you ever imagine that you might be doing something like this at this stage in your life, or and did you have like come from an entrepreneurial family, or or would your your fifteen or ten year old self have been astonished to discover that in twenty five years time you're doing what you're doing now? No, I think that I, I always had an entrepreneurial, um, you know, light. Um, you know, I came from you know an uh, middle class family where my dad was a, a, ma a mailman, my mom. Uh, worked for a, a supermarket chain, uh, so I had the, the great opportunity at a, the age of 14 to go to work for that same uh, supermarket chain, Acme <laughs> Markets. Uh, so at I remember right Acme. Age, is that yeah. an East Coast? Is that an East Coast thing? Is that yeah, yeah okay. an East Coast thing? That, that's correct. <laughs> okay, because I, I grew up in New Jersey, so I, I went to the Acme. <laughs> yes, so uh, went to work at Acme at 14. Um, started as a bagger, and a, a, a week later. Uh, I approached the, the store manager and said, hey, you have these bakery racks around um, the store. It doesn't look like you're doing much, much with them. Can you tell me about them? Uh, he told me that they, you know, they get these frozen bakery goods in. They they thaw them and they put them out. I said, well, I think we could, you know, probably do some more business 
Uh, and he said, okay, well, show me what you can do. Um, and about a month later, I was, you know, running our thaw and sell bakery at the age of 14 uh, at Acme. And it was, you know, when I started doing about $300 uh, a business a week. Um, and then I think when I left, so I was at Acme for over five years, we were doing like over $3,000 a week in thaw and sell bakery goods. So, so wait, what's, what was the like basic improvement? Like what was the basic thing that you spotted in their inefficiency or whatever they were doing? <laughs> so I, I was just... You know, again, watching people um, go through the supermarket and the way that they had the racks positioned, position, you know, I was like, I don't know that they're in the best positions, et cetera. So, you know, I didn't know anything about floor plan or, or merchandising at that point right. other than just watching people's behavior. I said, hey, we, we move these here and do that. And by the way, it seems like everyone wants the blueberry muffins, so we need more of those. <laughs> so, I mean, just basic observations. And to be honest, like, I was like, didn't want to bag groceries because it was not fun. Right. So, yeah. So that looked that looked much cooler cooler to me. So, um, well, you know, well, I I think there's a tremendous lesson here for our listeners that I knew as an age of fourteen. Obviously, your upbringing led you to be self confident enough to approach the boss and make a suggestion, but. It's quite extraordinary how many opportunities are just there if you're ready to go to people with ideas. And many bosses wish that many of their employees were more enterprising and coming up with ideas than than they are. And, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Maybe he'd have said no, and you'd still be bagging groceries, but at least you tried. <laughs> that's a great point. I, the worst that can happen is no. That, that's the worst. Exactly. I think, you know, people get frozen in, in rejection. Um, versus, um, you know, what, what someone could actually say yes to. So I think that's that's a tremendous lesson. And I, I think it talks to just about that grit and, and that mentality of, of, you know, just always pushing forward. And, and did, was that your first business when you were 14? And had, or had you been doing lemonade stands even before then? Had you I done mean, anything? you know, I worked, um, not, that was my first full, full, you know, real job. And funny enough, um, Acme was was unionized, so I was in the union. A union, I didn't know what a union was, so uh, but it wasn't. I, I'd done some part time landscaping for for a, a family friend's business, etc. You know, helping out on the on the weekends. But you know, Acme was my my first real job, and and I had that from my freshman year in um, high school to my freshman year in college. Yeah, and I, I know Kimon has, uh, did this as well, but I'd say for people listening, particularly international non-Americans, it's really common in America for teenagers and even quite young kids to do jobs. And, you know, I was lucky enough that when I was living in a village in the countryside, even at the age of 10 or 12, there was like potato picking. There were different things you could do. And I think you learn a great deal from a job. Just, you know, you, you don't necessarily realize what you're learning, but even just things like it's really nice to be paid at the end of the week, you know, getting, even if it's only a few dollars, it's a very very nice feeling when you're a kid, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it, it, that's a great point. I think for me, it was about, it was always about that goal setting, right? I wanted to get that job because I wanted to save. So when I turned 16, I could have a car. Um, and that, that car was a, a, a gateway to freedom and other things. So that was, uh, What'd you get? That was definitely what I was focused on. What car did uh, you get? 1987 Chevrolet Blazer. <laughs> Nice. And by the way, how old do you know? Just to give a bit of context, because we can see you. Uh, I'm 48. 48. Okay, so you're doing well for your age. 
Yeah, so I would like to comment actually on that because so yeah, I actually did have a very similar whatever. I grew up in um, in New Jersey and I did also lots of jobs and and I do think that the, the I, I do echo that I, what one thing that you just sort of said was that you you didn't want to do the bagging and like I, I worked in a factory like the like the real hardcore like doing like all the crappy things in a factory and that's actually very and it, there was nothing good there was nothing entrepreneurial in there but what was good was i never ever want to work in a factory like that's like you just there are really jobs that you just don't want to do and when you're young i mean getting that opportunity to see and then like the other thing is hustle because i you know and lots of other like i had a flower delivery job and or other jobs where i could like if i was like i don't more efficient or something like that I got better ROI. I got like more, like I was just done work and I had more money faster and all that stuff. So anyway, so to give us, talk us through this, like how, so then what next? So like you went to college and so you stopped Acme, I guess. Is that what happened? You went to college? Yeah, and then... no, I, I went to college and uh, went went to college, you know, um, local, local to where I grew up um, and had the pleasure of playing um, collegiate lacrosse. Uh, so I played lacrosse I as well. <laughs> I needed a, uh, needed a job that was more flexible um, than Acme. So, um, you know, I had a great job through college that was flexible. I worked at a, a beer, a beer beverage store, <laughs> um, you know, throughout, throughout college. Um, and then, you know, while I was in college, um, you know, one of my best friends and, and business partner, Jason Brennan, and I, you know, um, both had internships, um, you know, my, my, uh, my, you know, late in my junior year and, and his sophomore year in, in college. And I was working for at the time was Dean Witter, uh, which was a, later acquired, you know, by Morgan Stanley. He was working for a, a marketing company. Uh, and I think both of him and I both realized like, hey, we're best suited to, to work for our, ourselves. Um, so um, we started out, you know, helping some friends um, and friends of friends, um, you know, with, with their marketing. Um, how to just better promote their business, you know, whether it was simple things like brochures or, uh, you know, doing some radio partnerships. So that was the, the beginning of, uh, you know, Jason and I's um, true business. Um, we also had a, a side business, um, you know, that we sold T-shirts uh, to, to um, you know, high school students. Um, so we, we did that for, for beer money and food money. Um, so, um, you know, him and I have been been in business together for you know 20, 27 years. It was born, um, you know, out out of uh, that experience we had together uh, in college, and ultimately, again, um, realizing we didn't want to do something, and that that was working for um, you know a big big corporation. So we started toying toying around with the, the, the business, helping a couple people, got a couple clients, um, and then um, you know, kind of it just started from there, and that was the so like basically it was consulting at the beginning. It was, you would, would you cl cl like classify more as like consulting or like helping somebody with their marketing, like strategy and yeah, stuff like I, that? And it was basic, like, yeah. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a landscaping business. How do I get more customers? Right. Hey, I'm a, a physician. How do I get more patients? I mean, and hold on a second. This is back before. I mean, what were you like? You're helping them position them in the yellow pages. I mean, oh yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. Like, you know, we we had you know dial up, right? I mean, right. AOL right. Uh, dial up. Um, you know, uh, Jason had you know internet. You know, I mean, it was very slow. I mean, yeah. You know, most, These are the '90s. I mean, we're in the '90s now, right? These are the '90s. So we're in 1996. 
Yeah. Okay. And and just just to ask a question, when you were a pro, I want to hear about how you got your first client. But obviously, you weren't a great marketing specialist with a CV and a track resume <laughs> and a track record. And um, so when you when you got your very first client, how did you approach the business of persuading someone to give a project to you when basically you were a new kid on the block and there were probably lots of other people who are like forty five years old who you know <laughs> who were who were potentially a better vendor for the same thing because they were more experienced than you were. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. So two twofold. My business partner and I are both lifelong learners, you know, from from young ages. So I think we were, you know, always out there um, you know, seeking information, you know, reading reading the Wall Street Journal, business magazines, those types of things. So I think we just had um an understanding of of, of business uh both through our other other jobs um, in high school uh, in college, but it was more they were they were networks and friends of the family, right? So it was more about talking to them, you know, hey, this is how uh, we think you might be able to improve or grow or grow your business. You know, how are you communicating? You know, with you know, the, again, the one one was a landscaper. So how are you communicating with when you go see a pro, um, you know, prospect? Do you have materials that you're leaving them on the services that you that you provide? So, you know, simply you know helping them put those materials together. Um, you know, a, our other first client was a, a physician, and he had a he had a, a orthopedic practice and a physical rehab practice. Um, and again, his wasn't getting his physician, you know, his uh, orthopedic patients into his, you know, um, physical therapy. So helping him do that, helping him get awareness. Um, you know, it was two people that really, they didn't really understand marketing um, right. at all. So, you know, we, we seemed knowledgeable, even though we, we didn't have much experience at that time. You were, you were a relative, you were a relative expert. And what was your business model? How did you say we'll charge you X for doing Y? I mean, because did you do, you said you weren't exactly consultants, you're more like service. Yeah, delivery. I would say the, the first one was, um you know, gra gratis, you know, just helping them out so we could learn, <laughs> um, you know, the landscaping. And then, um, you know, we, the other one was, you know, we put a proposal together. That was, that was our first, our first real paying client. Um, they were our client for, whew, I want to say 20 years before wow. they ended up selling, uh, their, their practice to, um, a bigger provider. So they, they, uh, they were, they, they became a, you know, a long-term client for Jason. Yeah. There's another lesson out here for, for listeners, which is that, uh, David's first client wasn't a client because he did it for free, but he wanted, and like, if you think that you can help another person improve their business and you're young and you don't have track record, offering to do it for free is quite hard for them to say no to. And if it turns out you can't, then you've discovered very inexpensively that your idea was a bad idea. And if, but if you can improve their business, then you've got a potential reference and, and you, you believe then in what you, it's much easier for you to sell it when you, you know in your bones that you can do it because you've done it already, I guess. Yeah. And I, I think just you know, for us it was we had a passion for helping others grow their grow their business. And mm -hmm. um that's stayed true um, you know, throughout um our our entire uh, existence. Okay. So so just at that beginning, obviously you had a couple you had a client that you kind of proved to yourself you could do something useful, but were were there sort of like important moments along along the road where you saw that this could turn into a sort of more than a hundred million dollar a year business. Like the most I, well, I certainly <laughs> didn't think we thought it was going to turn into that at that point, but um, we did something that you mentioned, um, which is 
pretty funny now that you look back on it. We took out um, a listing ad in in the phone book, the yellow pages, for under under marketing <laughs> services. So, um, you know, we were you know big investment, our- big investment, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, uh, so, sorry, I, I said don't use jargon terms. Can you explain what the phone book is for our yes. younger, for our, young, for our, younger, for our younger list? And this is not a joke. I literally think that a twenty year old may not know what a phone. No, book. I don't think they they do. Um, so in the states. Um, the telephone providers, whether it was Bell Atlantic or whomever it might be, would put out a, a, a book that was probably at that time maybe four or five inches thick. And it had everyone's uh, you know, household phone number in, in what they call it the white pages. So you know, it, had, it had David Rand, my address, and, and my home phone number. And then part of the book was yellow pages which in the yellow pages was business advertisements um for various pretty much any service you could think about was listed um in this book so that book got delivered once once a year to your to your home um and every family you know had that book because there was no i mean really at that time the internet was there i mean some chat rooms and and, you know AOL, it's the best. No, it was useful. The point is it was actually a useful tool. Like I remember using the phone book. Like I wanted to find the name of the person and you put your finger down and it's like at this address and there's like three of the same name. <laughs> yeah. And imagine if you, you know, your your hot water heater broke or something, yeah. you know, broke in your house. You know, that's where you went. You went to the yellow pages to, yeah. to, to call a repair person. So, so, so it was, it's a sort of offline, an offline version of Google. One thousand percent. So. <laughs> You know, we had the brilliant idea that we're going to take out our, our listing in the um, in the yellow pages and advertise our marketing services. So, and what did you do for the phone number? Because I mean, I remember having similar crazy ideas. But one of the barriers was that you know you'd have to give you'd have to give an address, and if you didn't yet have an office or a because did, did you have a mobile phone at that stage or well, how did you? No, do I don't think so. No, I don't think we had a mobile phone for probably another year or two. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 what did you what 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 did you do? Did you have an office? So or... we used my mom's house as our business address, and our phone. We had we we got a phone number because you needed to have a business phone number in order to have a, a business ad in there. Six ten six four four eight six three seven. Still our phone number. Still our business number till this day. But if someone rang it, were you sitting by it hoping or, or what? Yeah, yeah. You, well, you had an answering machine, right? Exactly. Um, or exactly. if someone called during business hours, um, you know, you could you could answer it. The, the, the brilliant thing was not many people, our phone was not ringing that much, right? What <laughs> um, I remember uh, one day uh, in 1998, Jason and I were both sitting in the office and the phone rang. And um, it was a... a company called Metropolitan Communications, which was um, sold Motorola two-way radio equipment. And the gentleman on the phone said, hey, I need a marketing plan and I need it in a week or else Motorola is not going to let me sell this product. The product was called Telerio. I'll never, never forget this. So that same day, I got in my car and uh, drove about 15 minutes to see that potential client um, it was the, a guy named Bob, and uh, the owner of that business was Dale Petrovich. Um, that was 1998. 
Dale Petrovich is still a client of ours and has become a great friend of mine. And that work that we did for Dale Petrovich on that marketing plan that he needed to sell this product from Motorola made it to a VP at Motorola. And um, we had no idea about what co-op dollars are. Co-op dollars, just for, for people that don't understand, are dollars that the, the OEM or the manufacturer gives businesses to promote their, their products. Um, so they said, hey, um, we've got co-op dollars. Would you want to be a provider on our co-op program and provide the services you're providing to Dale to other Motorola dealers? Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah. So Dale, that yellow pages rang. <laughs> um, we went up there and our, our work got in front of Motorola um, and Motorola again has been um, that two way radio business has changed dramatically, but they've been a, a, a client of ours um, for, you know, since, since then as well. Um, so that, that so was this, that. was that it? I mean, was that like the aha moment? Was that the uh, thing that well, like, that was the moment that, started putting money into our, 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 our checking account every, every, uh, every yeah. week. Yes. Because I mean, just, just, so this is a, such a nice story because you, sometimes, you know, you get lucky, but you, it's not an accident that you get lucky, but you know, you did a good market. You, a, you got in the car and went to see an interesting signing client the same day, which yes. is a way that a small business can compete with a big business. Cause if they'd sent that to such and such or some 15 person marketing company, they probably wouldn't have sent the managing director over to talk to a sales lead, but there's a stage at which you can do that. But the other thing is like Motorola probably, it might've, they easily might've had several hundred thousand dollars a year for, for, for that marketing budget. And they don't care, you know, they, they just want good marketing plan and they care in a sense, but yeah. you know, for, the, for them, it's small beer, but for you, it's, it's really quite a big budget. So how much did you manage to invoice out of that lead in the end? Do you think? So I'm going to tell you this story. It's an amazing story. So, like I said, we, he's been a client and a friend. He put us on retainer. I didn't even know what a retainer was. <laughs> and he's, we've helped each other out professionally and personally through the years. So he put us on a retainer for $1,175 a month at that time. Um, and he continued to just send that check, even when we've done a little, very little business or a lot of business, because uh, we built an amazing relationship together. And, uh, I think that's the other lesson that that in any business, building amazing relationships creates, you know, what lifetime value, um, you know, both professionally um, and personally. And that that retainer that he paid us then turned into us, you know, spending his co-op funds and not letting his co-op funds expire. So we were able to make additional, um, you know, income off off of that um, from there. We parlayed that into other manufacturer relationships in in this in the similar industry, um, which was you know a, a great for us. And then we really got to learn. That was our first you know time that we got to learn about marketing and become real real marketers. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so so, so you went to an adjacent because that's a, that's always that's always a really good. Like, you know, we, we always do that in our business as well. Like you, you went to an adjacent, so you like, you had success with Motorola. So you went to other companies like Motorola with the same types of problems, with the same types of marketing needs. And you, yeah. Offered... So, so that bit, you know, the, the, what they call the two, a radio communications business at that time sold Motorola. They sold other, 
other systems, 911 systems, et cetera, a manufacturer called Zetron, Tenwood. So we, we learned about their co-op programs and we, and we, we replicated that, that model. Exactly. And yeah, what Kim was saying, I mean, this is something that's really important. And it happened in one of my businesses where we were doing barcode systems and it turned out there were barcodes on telephone invoices for various reasons to do with the way the banking system worked. And, um, you know, once we got that first one, the next step, OK, who else does invoices like the phone companies is the water, the gas, the electricity. But, you know, you, you do one thing that gives you an insight into an opportunity. And then if you're swift, if you're swift about it and you get out to people, you may be much smaller and newer, but you're ahead of your competitors because they don't even realize that these cart budgets exist, for example. So they don't see. And the opportunity isn't about marketing. It's about the structure of the market in that case, isn't it? Correct. So you like, so I don't know, where are we now in terms of like revenue? Like, cause I'm just, I still have a feeling I want to get to, I want to understand, I, I called it already like the aha moment, but I just, I have a feeling that something must've happened. Something you must've identified something to, cause you know, to go from zero to 200 million is like, that's a, that even 20 years, whatever it's, a, I, I suspect it's, it was, I mean, maybe it was just slow and steady, but I suspect that there were some, <laughs> there were some significant jumps along the yeah, way. I, it, it, it was it was steady, right? Because we just <laughs> we're going to finish our twenty six year of year over year growth. Uh, but there were there were a couple of other aha moments that you know I'll I'll, I'll quickly share. Um, because we got traction and results with with Motorola, um, that the network came calling again. That network at that time was my brother. Um, and my brother uh, owned, um, at that time, five World Gym franchises. World Gyms are health clubs um, in South Florida. And his business was growing and said, hey, uh, bro, I, I see you and Jay are really make, making a, a business out of this. You kind of know what you're doing. I need some help with, with my marketing. I've been doing it myself, but you know, now we're running five five clubs and a couple hundred employees, etc. Um, so my uh, brother handed over the keys um, to, to to Jay and I to run his marketing, which was again a different. That was you know um, direct consumer marketing. Um, so we again took that experience um, in terms of you know what what we do about um, you know the health club industry, given my brother's expertise and being in that industry, understanding like how far people will, will go for health clubs. And, and we took over um, his, his budget. And, you know, we grew, he grew, we grew because he went from five, five franchises to, to 12 before he sold, sold um, his business. And, you know, we went from, you know, that probably at that point became, you know, our biggest, you know, retail, you know, spending client. So we, we, we had this, we were learning about retail. We were getting getting good at retail, and we were learning about about co-op. The same time around this happening in, in 1999, we got referred to our first car dealer um, in in the states here, a local car dealer that um, through through a mutual acquaintance said, "Hey, I see you guys." seem to be doing some cutting edge things. You know, you're talking about the internet when no one's talking about the internet, you're doing, <laughs> doing these things. 
uh, I have this car dealer I want to introduce you to. So same story. Got got right in the car, went up and saw this this car dealer. His name was Bill Latch and um, met with Bill. Bill was spending twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a month on mostly newspaper advertising at the, at the time, uh, promoting, you know, um, at that time, Dodge, uh, Dodge Chrysler and Jeep. And uh, I said, hey, Bill, like, what, what are you getting? Like, what kind of results? He's like, I really don't know. And I said, okay, well, you know, one of the things we could help you do is better track your advertising. Like, we can put uh, a, a call tracking number on your print ads. We could do this. So um, we were able to earn Bill's business. And, you know, he was spending $25,000, $30,000 a month. He was a small car dealer. So, okay. and there was co-op involved, right? And we had we had understood this co-op knowledge from, from Motorola. So we we're off to the races in the auto auto business. Can um, you talk us a little bit about? Because I, I just want to. Because I'm actually even just for myself to understand this. Um, uh, so when you keep talking about co-op, so basically this person has like whatever four hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars that they spend on the marketing, but it's because they're also because they're you're getting a piece of how are you getting your like what's this co-op like how do you get the yeah, who's so giving the, you great, yeah. great question so at, at this time it, it's changed over the years but at this time so whether it was motorola or jeep you know we would do the advertising right let's just say a newspaper ad or direct mail yeah. piece we would get the invoice if it was uh direct mail we get a postal receipt and let's just say it was ten thousand dollars so we would yeah. take all that paperwork we would submit it to Motorola or or um, Jeep, and then the our client would get a check back um, based okay. on how much co-op funds they had earned by purchasing cars or Motorola two-way radios, and they get reimbursed. So, it, and that it money was, went to, but who did that come? That money went to you then. Uh, I, so. At first, it went to the to the client, and then the client yeah. paid us. Right, exactly. We've okay. evolved over years now, where we've become certified on a number of different co-op programs. Okay, so you could get it direct. Yeah, but uh, and, not, and, okay. It, I got it. it was paperwork. No, but it does make sense because basically you're doing marketing for. I mean, that's great. That car dealer is going to sell cars, but you're ultimately marketing the car itself. So you're marketing Jeep or whatever. So that's mm -hmm. why they're. I'm trying now explaining to people yeah. listening. I mean, that's why they want to do this. I mean, yeah. yeah so that's why Jeep would give the dealer co-op money. Motorola yeah. would give give the communications company because they were selling their products. Yeah, and 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 so, and this still goes on. With some one of my other businesses we import products from American manufacturers and one of them's Honeywell and these big companies like Honeywell will say like if, if you've got if you're importing two million dollars a year worth of, of their stuff they so usually it's like sometimes it might be one percent they say oh we'll give you twenty thousand bucks towards your marketing and you just send them an invoice for the trade fair you show them the invoice for the trade fair and sometimes they they, they match it they say we'll give you Another hundred percent of what you spend up to so 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 say up to twenty thousand bucks we'll reimburse if you spend twenty thousand bucks so then there's forty thousand and it makes sense for the manufacturers because as Keeman says you know you're promoting the Honeywell and they, obviously they they want to look at your advert as well because you know if you use Honeywell's budget and then you don't put Honeywell logo on your your trade fair stand Honeywell get very upset about that so there are rules and stuff but the, yes, the rules correct. the rules anyway is there so, a ratio would you say there's a ratio? Let's say they're spending like three hundred thousand on. Would there would there be like a ratio to the co-op? I mean, is it like yeah, 10, 10 to one? Is it, it, it in the automotive uh, world today? 
you know, it's a percentage uh, of invoice or uh, a, a fixed amount per per vehicle. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and so, so you got into it. And so basically, you were being good at old style marketing and just applying up to date techniques in the old world. And meanwhile, the internet revolution is tearing up the old way of doing things, and you're up to date. So presumably as well as just old fashioned things like having a referral code on a print ad in the media. So you track what's going on with that print ad. You're also there at the beginning of the explosive growth of online marketing. And was that a that must've been a huge opportunity for you. Yeah, it's still, believe it or not, that probably came a couple years later, uh, still in 98. Like most people were not, you know, I, I would say it was in the 2000, you know, the, the, the late 99, 2000 is when, I mean, the dot-com thing was happening around 2000. The, 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 the yeah. dot-com thing happened around 2000. So, But, but believe it or not, um, a lot of the small businesses still weren't thinking about websites right. and digital presence and digital digital marketing. That, that, mm -hmm. that boom you know, really happened um, post the dot-com bust. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a, a separate question here, David, which is, you, know, you must have begun to start employing people and like, as well as being good at marketing, you had the chat, there must have been a point at which you were no longer able to deliver all the things you were doing personally with your business partner. And can you share a little of your experience of taking people on and what, you know, how you found good people? Because, you know, it's one thing to do it well yourself with your partner, but you building a team that can deliver as well as you can, or even better than you can is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. And so, can you take us through some of the highlights yeah. of build, building the oh, organization? Sure. And uh, it's it's going to go back to one of the reoccurring themes, networking relationships. So that same Motorola Metropolitan Communications client, um, one of the employees there had a, a daughter who was an art student at um, one of the local universities uh, who came uh, to help, you know, part time with us, um, you know, probably around uh i would say 99 2000 somewhere um before that we might have been you know we we're using some freelancers um kate heskett came to work for us um and she's still here 22 22 years later but that's not quite that that's, so that's attracting one person but you know there's a difference <laughs> here. there's a difference in getting what because like i mean i really think for a lot of people very entrepreneurial people they're quite competitive they're good at getting stuff done but you know it's one thing to have that within you but building a large-scale organization that is you know not just great for the owners but great for talented people to work in isn't yeah and isn't the easiest thing to do and you've obviously done it so no but I, the reason I, I i really you know hone in on that is because i think it was you know who jason and i were and who we are today and that's deep rooted in culture um and i know that a lot of people talk about culture but but culture is something that you don't talk about something culture is something that's built from within and um you know having kate join the team and, and work her way up from a graphic designer um to you know she's our chief administrative officer now um just is one story of many many stories of where we've brought on you know, entry level talent um, with similar mindsets of people that are that are looking to, you know, do more. You know, that's been it's really been our our you know one of our 
you know, biggest points of success is really. Yeah. I, I, let's take a sidebar and talk about this because it, it actually the most successful company that I founded, the first employee that I hired has also been, is still works in the company. And it's also in the similar 20 plus, it's like <laughs> the similar kind of thing. And so, and I have my, and I also strongly believe in culture and I believe it. So let's just, let's just talk about this a little bit. Cause I think this is kind of useful and important. So like what, from your perspective, what does it mean to build a good culture? Like, and how, like, what would you say has been your secret to like, how do you make these, how do you make people want to work with you for long periods of time? And like, it would like, what, what has been your, like, why do you think it works? Like, what do you think it is about the way you guys do things that has made this like a, a cause it, this is a really, really undervalued. And I think super important part of setting up a, a successful business. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, it, it's attributed to a tremendous part of our success. And we just had our, our holiday party last night. And I, I got to share some stories with people that um, I've never met in person. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's truly, if you care about what you do um, and you're passionate about what you do, um, and then that translates into um, how you build relationships. And I keep going back to this word relationships. Because it's it's true. Uh, it's been part of our success in acquiring business and developing and cultivating talent. Um, it's about building relationships and about caring. Um, it's about passion. It's about love. Um, and those things, I, I think, are so often undervalued um, in life. Um, and, and I think, you know, people, some people are afraid. Um, to talk about them, right? Because, oh, that's corny. That's not how it really works. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it's how it really works. And um, there's 17 people on my executive team. And the lowest tenured person is, you know, three years. Um, the highest tenured person is, is Kate at, at, you know, 22 plus years. Uh, and I think the average tenure is over 10. So that doesn't happen by, uh, you know, just being a job. Or just being yeah. a paycheck for some for yeah. someone that happened. And by. I I want to I want to hone in on one word that you said there. I, I think it's actually care. That yeah. actually, but you actually do care. You actually do care, and then they know that you care. You can't fake care. Care is, do you know what I'm saying? Like that's like you can't fake it. Like you are actually they. You actually really do care, and they know that you care, and that and that. And and that that's part of the glue there that makes it that uh, makes it, it work. And, and as Kevin said, you can't fake it. And you see some of these huge companies, and I'm not going to name names because <laughs> it, it would probably be illegal. But there are examples of these huge companies, and there there are lots of them in in Krakow in Poland, where Kevin and I started doing business together big international outsourcing companies they talk about the ex family and you see the manager the employees rolling their eyes because they everyone knows it's bs because they they call it and you can label it have all the right buzzwords and labels but if it's not actually exactly in in the heart of the people who say it it's just it's it's worse it's even worse than, than it, not having it at all it is and <laughs> you'll rarely hear me talk that way to the team because if if it's if if you truly care and you truly love and you're truly passionate they you don't need to tell them that no <laughs> they know that no they action, see it actions speak louder than words right and yes one thousand percent and um that is that is deep rooted yes into our culture um and they watch how people behave including 
you know, myself and the executive team. Yeah. Um, and that's about, you know, whether it's first in, last out, you know, the, the toilet overflows. Do you, do you pick up the plunger yourself or do you look to somebody yeah. else? You know, yeah. Jay and I, are, we're going to pick up the plunger ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and, totally. and that's just a different mindset and mentality. Yeah. Um, totally. I, I think that the other, the other thing is part of caring um, is helping our team, you know, unlock, you know, we, we talk about our mission at, at, at stream and that is really to help unlock our client and our employees full potential. Uh, and I think that's one thing that we, you know, strive to do um, is is really help people realize. Yeah, that. and that's part about caring because you care about the people. You want them to have interesting jobs. You want to have an interesting lives. You want their lives to be good. You want their families to be good. That's all. That's all part about. That's all part of caring. And what what's so interesting just talking to you here about culture, and it's like if you like, where does that show up on the balance sheet? <laughs> how do you value that? Like, how do you value that? You know, here's what I'll tell you. And this has been an awesome experience. You know, so. Uh, you know, Jason and I sold part of the business to to uh, Samerica Capital um, in in 20, 2019. And you hear so many, um, you know, kind of indifferent stories around, you know, venture capital, private equity, et cetera. And I think a lot of times they're they're skeptical um, about when you talk about culture and, and what that means. But to me, how it, it translates to the balance sheet is is growth um, and loyalty and being able to go through the good times um, and the bad times. So, um, you know, I've learned a tremendous amount uh, about myself, you know, going through those good times and bad times. And, you know, COVID is a, is a great example. Um, you know, our business, you know, plummeted overnight. So our revenue from March of 2020 to April of 2020 dropped 70%, just like that. Um, in the States, most automotive dealerships were shut down yeah. they couldn't sell cars etc so um we had devised a plan in february in late february because we saw this coming um and um said hey listen it's gonna get tough it's gonna be a rough rough go we don't know how long it's gonna be be there but here's what we're gonna do this was before we had any government government uh subsidy with unemployment right. etc we said Jason and I aren't going to take any pay. Our executive team um, took just basically, we sat in a boardroom. I said, how much do you guys need to pay your bills? And it was a very modest amount, you know, probably a quarter of what most of them were making monthly, if not a a sixth. And we said, okay, the executive team is going to take that amount. Jason and I aren't going to take any pay. Um, We're going to put, we're going to put all, the rest of the company on what we call pay bands. Um, so like trying to, you know, affect, um, you know, the, the people um, the least possible. But at the same time, we wanted to keep everyone employed. Um, we did not want to furlough or lay anybody off. So we put that plan together. I went to the board. Um, I said, hey, listen, we've been through 2008. We've been through 2009. Um, you know, um, bad times won't last forever. Here's what we're going to recommend. Oh, and by the way, we want to pay everyone back when we're able to. So um, I think to give you an idea when invest an investor understands what culture means uh, without hesitation, did, did our private equity partner and our board say, wow. absolutely. So that's impressive. It, 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 it's impressive um, in terms of a cu- couple of reasons. It's one, because they understood what culture means. 
they understood what sustainability means. Um, and they understood that we're not going to, you know, our theme was we're not going to leave any streamer behind. And that, that was, that was the goal. And listen, delivering that news is probably the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in my career. And, um, I, I think that, you know, obviously you probably had, a, we had probably had 10 people that were not, not pleased, you know, outwardly angry, whatever it may be. The rest of the people said, you know, thank you for caring about us. And thank you for making a decision that was not just based on the, the, the P and L right now. Yeah. Um, so as all things happened, um, the, the, the States opened up the, the dealers went to battle. Um, and, um, you know, basically, uh, we're able to open up, you know, three, four five months later, um, our business certainly didn't, didn't rebound to, to pre COVID levels at that time, but, um, we paid all of our people back by the end, by the end of that year, um, all, all those wages, we didn't lay off, um, yeah. furlough anybody. So to me, uh, the, the moral of the story and, and what culture means is when you put the people before profits, um, and, and they know that. And ultimately, to me, that's what creates sustainability. That's what, um, you know, breeds um, awesome talent that's, you know, not just about a paycheck um, and that they're loyal to your brand, too. So you're creating that, right. that bi-directional loyalty. Yeah, I would actually add to that because you know it's it you you actually you worked on that for a long time. You I think what I think that I like to call you made plenty of deposits in the bank of goodwill over yeah. the years, again and again and again. And then when the hard times came, because you sort of under sort of stated this, but when the hard times came, you had a whole bunch of your employees, even your best employees and all kinds of employees who were willing to take pay cuts, whatever the terms, whatever the conditions, they were ready to take pay cuts, but they were ready to do that because of, I believe because of you and the way you managed your culture. And, you know, as I said, the, the deposits that you'd made, the previous goodwill deposits that you made, you were cashing in on that now. And of course, then you paid it back and it all, but you know, and there's trust and there's also so trust is an element of this as well. They trusted you for sure. So exactly. and just fascinating, fascinating stuff, actually. Yeah, I, I was going to say that obviously you built up a bank of trust as well as goodwill. Because good, and maybe maybe talk about some of the tougher things, because you said that it was one of the toughest things you had to do in your business career. But um, and someone listening to this who did, hadn't done business themselves might think, that, oh, this is it's all so nice. You know, David's such a nice guy. I came and written. They sound so nice. <laughs> Can you give examples of tough when you had to be tough because i think having a good being a having a good culture isn't always about being the nice friendly guy that were there examples where you had to be tough with clients with employees or, or difficult decisions because it's not all it's all not all sweetness and life no guys as i said entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart it is not and you know we, we make tough decisions you know every every, every day um but you know We've experienced, you know, in, in our 27 years, um, some pretty crazy um, events. If, if you think about it, you know, when you're in it every day, you, you don't you, you don't do a lot of reflection on, on, on those those things. But, you know, I remember, you know, driving into work on a, on a beautiful, um, sunny Tuesday morning um, and my wife called and she was my wife's an ER nurse and she goes, oh, my God. Do you know what happened? I said, no, I'm, I'm driving into work. And um, she's like, well, a plane just hit the World Trade Trade Center. Um, and uh, I was like, what? Yeah, at this point, they didn't know it was a commercial um, plane. 
Uh, so I, I drive to work and before I even pull in, she calls me again. And, you know, it's like, no, it was commercial plane, et cetera. So, um, you know, that was a, a time where, you know, there was so much uncertainty and, you know, just that was my first time dealing with trying to reassure clients and, you know, our team and just understanding what was going on. So, I mean, those, those are, those are difficult moments. Um, I, I mean, it was a difficult moment for everyone, I think, but, um, you know, just not understanding what, what was going on. Um, and, and when you're, when you're, when you're the owner or the co-owner and the boss also, sometimes people <laughs> think you know more than you do, right? Because, you know, they look at you because you're the sort of, you're the parent figures of the organization. Yeah. But in fact, you're, I mean, the president of the United States didn't know what was going to happen yeah. <laughs> either. But I was thinking maybe, can you reflect a bit on processes that, you know, obviously to, Execute in a small organization with five, 10 people is is one thing, but was there a point at which you had to sort of like, how did you develop all the processes? Because you're running a big organization now that was it always learning by doing or did at some stage you have to sort of like bring in outsiders who had done things like you were doing before and like, because learning by doing is a little trickier to get very big. If you've never Yeah, seen... it was a lot of learning by doing in the early, the early days, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, it was a lot of, you know, not, not, um, uh, grit, right. Fortitude grit, like would get us through. Um, but we, uh, Jason and I do, um, you know, there are definitely points. So one of those points is we brought in, uh, an outside consultant who had scaled, uh, you know, marketing firms and, and agencies. Uh, and we brought him in and I, I we might've been at, you know, 15 people at, at that point, um, and I mean, fundamental things that again, Jason and I were we we didn't we weren't having we didn't have other careers in the agency business at this point. So we brought Bob, a gentleman named Bob in. Bob really uh, I think helped us, um, you know, take a step back and look look at the business we have, and you know, asked us like, well, who do you want to be when you grow up, and those types of things. But fundamental things like, hey, are you guys tracking time or your 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 uh, per client and those types of things, which we weren't doing at that time. Like, listen, we were just getting the work done and, you know, keeping our clients happy and, and all those things. So that was really when we started to put in those, those processes, um, you know, around, I, I, again, around 15 people, right? Because that's when you just couldn't, you know, all sit in a room and, and figure things out. And, and, and I think there's a lesson for everyone listening that it doesn't matter whatever your business is, from digging graves to putting pipelines under the sea, whatever you're doing, being aware of what you don't know and like being aware of the fact that, you know, at some stage, you're going to need expertise that you're not going to have in-house. We did it in translation, and Kimo did it in translation in one of my other businesses. We, I was always looking for people who had done already what we were doing. And they might give you bad advice, but at least you've got a point of, because that's the other thing, you can't put all your faith in the outside consultant, can you? No, that, that, that's a great point, Richard. You can't, you can't. Um, I, I think you it's it's a learning moment, right? And, and you want to take away those things that um, they either said were challenges in their, their business career and how they solved them. Uh, but I think the, the true moral of the story is never stop learning. Don't be afraid to get outside points of view. My recommendation is is one of my things here in my team. Always, I said, always get your weather from, from multiple sources. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's important, you know, with taking business advice too, because 
you want different perspectives. Um, you want to maybe look at how um, others are solving the problem and not just one, one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you got to figure out how that fits into your business, into your culture, uh, and not just put someone else's processes in your business that doesn't align with your values and, and your, and your you know, thought process. Mm. And can you, I, I don't know if there's anything we're leaving out here. I'm sure there must be. Well, I'm conscious about the time and I'd still want to get the, the aha, like, like, what, like, where, like, you still, you, I, I, there has to be like, where. <laughs> so there was, so there's a, the, the big aha moment, like the aha moment that changed the, the financial trajectory yeah, of yeah. the business forever was when we had that first automotive client, we understood okay. how much money dealers were spending and how much we could impact that business. Uh, so you guys really special, would you say you, so it's because we don't know your business, you specialize in automotive, you specialize in dealerships. Has that been, you've. So, so we don't just specialize. We have other clients outside of that, but yeah. that we got really, really good at it. Okay. Um, some of the, the, the largest publicly traded um, dealer groups in the United States are our clients. Okay. Uh, we've got partnerships with 20 OEMs, Ford, okay. you know, Stellantis, um, BMW, et cetera, in the business. Yes. So that catapulted our, our business into, 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 into the stratosphere by yeah. understanding. So we parlayed that, that first auto client into, then into a large, a large dealer group, which was spending millions of dollars a year. Um, and we just became experts and we became experts by immersing ourselves in, in their business and understanding how all parts of their business work, their, their service business, their sales business, how to read a dealer financial statement that they send to the OEMs, the co-ops, um, all, and were there, all. were there certain years that were like, where you had to scale fast, like in yeah, the fast too- growth? Cause that's always a challenge. Like, how do you. Because one thing is you that's awesome that you have this opportunity, but how do you meet the challenge? I mean, it's yeah, just like- so we did. We we had to scale fast in in two thousand two was was a year, yeah. you know, where we probably doubled doubled in right. size, right? Double right. when you go from fifteen to thirty, like that's yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. And then when you go from thirty to sixty, exactly. you know, that, that's crazy. And then like when when I said that, you know, for me, it was like I think when we got to like over two hundred, then that was like it's another level, right? Another yeah. processes, HR. All, oh my all God, that. tell me about it, HR. I'm involved. We have HR now. HR is like a whole nother. <laughs> yeah. So, but the aha moment was for that, you know, part of the business. I know we're going to run out of time, so I can't yeah. even really talk about full throttle. Yeah. But that that was an uh, you know, an aha moment, um, and it was a, a moment that we saw the huge opportunity from the transformation of, of what we, you know, the traditional, the TV, the radio, the print to digital um, and how do we position our business to be able to take, you know, take hold of, of, of that. And that's really, that's what we did. Um, and, you know, um, we've become, you know, probably the, the leading, you know, automotive, um, you know, agency here, here in the States. And, and there is and, a, and, uh, and Canada now as well. Yeah, and there is a huge lesson for anyone listening that whatever business you're doing, sometimes you just get one new client and you think, how many more of this type of client are there? And it doesn't matter whether it's oil rigs or you know, just any, almost every industry at a, a national or if you're in America or international scale is just enormous. And so you you just find you're really good at doing one thing to do with wristwatches or whatever it is. You think, wow, that's a hundred, that's a hundred million dollar 
billion dollar market <laughs> if you yeah but you have you have to have your edge though you have to have some and you, you have to know in your bones that a smart client would really like to do business with you because you're better at doing that thing than other people because you've got some insight or in this case i guess it was the internet coming along and just applying old world techniques and new techniques and and you so jumping on because time is running out but just tell us about your decision to look for external capital and private equity where did that come from and what can you share about that yeah, no, I, I think one, it, it came from, you know, um, in 2017, we were first approached um, by a strategic to, to purchase us. Uh, and that was just not the direction that, you know, my business partner and I wanted to take the business. But, you know, we were curious, right? And we didn't, we didn't know what we didn't know. So we went out and said, okay, um, you know, if we wanted to, to actually sell the business, what we what would we do? So we learned uh, that you would hire an investment banker. So we, we uh, hired an investment banker. Um, we ran, we ran a process just to see, you know, um, you know, what valuations might be versus what the strategic was, you know, proposing to us during that process, we got to um, know uh, a number of private equity firms. Uh, we didn't do, we didn't transact um, at that point. And then, um, you know, year and a half, Later, the same strategic came back with a even better offer. Uh, so we ran uh, another process, and uh, you know we had met Severica, you know, um, earlier on. Uh, and again, we still weren't looking to do anything because the business again was, you know, continuing to grow. Um, and we we said, okay, well let, let's again let's just test it. Let's see what see what the valuation is. Um, is there any, at that, that's how we're starting to think strategically. Like, is there any big acquisitions we want to make? Is there anything that can help, you know, you know, the one plus one equals, you know, three or five or whatever number you want to apply to it. So we were thinking about that. So we were having some strategic conversations with a couple of private equity partners around, you know, acquisition targets, companies that were in the market. So we, it was getting us more excited, right? Cause we were about how do we grow? What's, right. what's bigger, those types of things. What are cha challenges for for us as as individuals that we haven't faced that we that we want to you know do in our career? But we did that. We had at, at that time we had num we had a number of uh, offers on, on the t on the table. Um, you know, one of the kind of offers plus an acquisition you know fell apart. Um, and then again, I think Jason at that time we felt really still great about the business, so we're like, hey. We're not going to do anything. Um, and that was late eight, 2018, maybe. Um, but I had stayed in contact with, with um, you know, two of the private equity, um, Jordan, the managing partner, uh, Richards at, at Severica. Him and I just kind of developed a, a, a you know, kind of a, a relationship. So we stayed in touch. And uh, about two months later, he just checked in and said, hey, listen, we really want to partner with you, Jason. We think there's a ton of potential and things we could do together. Um, you know, I know you guys have a client, clients up in Boston. We're going to be in Boston. I think you can arrange, you know, go see your client, have dinner, dinner with us. So we did. And, you know, they came to, to dinner with, uh, an offer, um, and that, you know, Jason and myself went, went back and, you know, we've got another business partner and, uh, we went and had breakfast that Saturday morning and, you know, we're debating, contemplating, discussing the offer. Um, and I said, Hey, listen, there's three of us, right? So there's three votes. Um, 
what do you what do you guys want to do? And I'll never forget it. I, I say this, I tell this story all the time, is you know, my business partner said, Hey, I, I don't think we'll ever regret doing doing this deal right now, right? Because we're gonna take some chips off the table, you know, everything we work for, you know, our families will be, you know, secure, etc. I said, Well, hey, listen, what do, what do you and Brian want to do? Vote. They said, Let's do it. So um, me again, you know, I, I, I could have, I could have went either way because I, again, believe in what we're doing. Um, uh, but I also heeded, um, you know, Jason's words is I don't think we'll ever regret this. And I'll tell you what, ha- having done the transaction and then go through COVID made things mentally a lot, a lot easier. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> for sure. But, um, but, uh, but this I, is so interesting for me personally, but also for the people listening. So like. What is the up? What is the positives and negatives of like? So basically, I, I'm just guessing. I assume you sold a majority share of your company. So we sold sixty. We sold sixty. Yeah. So, that, so um, somebody with, else who has control with, with yeah. the with the understanding that that you know truly the understanding of like not just you know we talk to all their clients etc. Right. Like this is your business to run. You know we're, right. we're strategic. We're going to build a you know independent board. You know we're we're going to provide capital. We're going to be able to go out there and make acquisitions. So. Uh, you know they've they've lived up to their promises. And this has happened. This has happened. You guys have uh, you've gone gone out and done stuff like that. Yeah, since... we've got a business under LOI right now. We got yeah. the, the, the pipeline. Um, you know, it, it's it's we build amazing independent board members. Uh, you know, gentlemen that have run, you know, Fortune 500 companies, including one being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, nice. sits on multiple public boards. So we've got a really strong. Uh, independent board network, a great um, private equity partner um, that believes in us, that believes in our vision. Um, and, you know, like to me, in a lot of ways, we're just getting started. So um, yeah, it's, it's really fun awesome. and exciting. And, mm. and I think that, um, you know, my advice to any entrepreneur that's, that's thinking about whether it's venture capital or private equity capital, um, it's just really got to align with, with what, what your personal and professional goals are. Um, and you know, it's, you know, it's, it becomes even more difficult in some ways in terms of like, listen, now, you know, if it was Jason and I, you know, it was Jason and I relying on each other to grow, to grow the business. Um, you know, you're obviously doing it to support your employees, et cetera, but now you've got, you know, investors and a board, um, that, you know, you've got more responsibility, um, and you've got, um, you know, a, a deeper sense of, you know, helping, helping, um, you know, manage um, all your constituents at that point. Well, I, I think this has been an amazing journey and congratulations. And from what, from what you're saying in five or two, you say the journey is still the, the what's ahead is even more exciting that, you know, you could be still doing this in 10 years time and with an even bigger smile on your face and just looking, <laughs> you know, uh, but you know, the, the future sounds exciting. Is, is there anything that, you haven't shared that you'd like either about you or your journey or the company that you think or like might. last tips like for anybody like just before we wrap up to, because yeah. sometimes Listen, it, I, i'll recap a couple of things because i think it, it's so underplayed and and undervalued in, in business and, and life a couple things one is grit um if you do not have grit you do not want to be an entrepreneur uh, <laughs> i mean because there's going to be bad days. There's going to be dark days. Um, and that leads me into the next thing. You need, you need a positive out- outlook um, and a positive attitude. 
because especially in the agency business, you're going to get fired a lot. Um, it comes with the territory, right? And if you can't can't handle handle that, um, you know, it, it's it's not something that is easy to then manage. You know that that um, in your in your personal life, um, and you got you got to. Everyone says you know passionate and find your passion, but you can find your passion outside of work, but you need to be passionate about work. If you're not passionate about work, you're not passionate about people, people being your, your team members and your clients. Um, again, it's, it's, it's going to be a struggle. Genuine. It's to be genuine. It's that genuine to be genuine. There's a huge value of being genuine. I agree. I wish I could credit the quote, but I heard just a few days ago, I heard someone say something amazing, which was don't do what you love, love what you do. That if you don't enjoy doing what you do, you're not going to be a happy person. So you have to be, you have to really enjoy what you do. Otherwise you're kind of screwed, I think. Yeah. And we, we have a saying here, it's etched into our floor in our office and it's painted in the parking lot. That's do the ordinary extraordinarily well. Very nice. Mm. And, and nice. that's just, you got to get up, show up <laughs> and mm. do, do the basics each and every, every day. Well, I, I, I think that's a really great note on which to end. And I just would say, if you're ever, if you're ever traveling over to Europe, um, make sure I'd, I'd really like to meet you in person and you know, take you out to dinner. It sounds like, I, I, will you be expanding in Europe? Will you be acquiring people here, do you think? Or is that? You know, um, we're, we're, we're contemplating it because one of our clients does have a presence in, in the UK. So we're trying to better understand if there's, there's opportunities um, out there. Uh, but I love Europe. My wife and I do. We could try to go every year. Uh, see a different place um, yeah so uh, it would it would be nice because then it gives me even more of a reason <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well um i i Kimo, do you want to do the wrap i'm, I'm no, just i mean that. yeah i just thanks david for your time really fascinating story uh i like whatever I, we interview a lot of people for some reason i i, I have a lot in common with you uh, I, like almost like it's it's crazy to listen to your story like it follows so many of the same sort of um themes that went through my career uh as well a lot of the things that, so i mean i i really anyway i really I, i really enjoyed it and 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 thanks for taking the time and that culture thing guys Don't forget that culture thing. That's 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 the that's the secret sauce. Um, let's leave it at that. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend.